All right, good morning. It's good to be together in this virtual format, and um, it's good to look together into God's Word. We're going to be resuming our short series in the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, we've been calling this series Christ's Word to a Church in Crisis, and the church has been in crisis lately being forbidden for meeting, and all of those types of things. There continues to be much confusion and frustration over the coronavirus. Uh, Many of us are tired of the lockdown and um, ready to be free, as it were. We long to return to some normality. Some are warning that normality may not actually come for quite some time. Um, For us as church leadership, There's been just such a myriad of complex challenges of how to shepherd the flock, how to communicate, how to make sure nobody's falling through the cracks. A very, very unusual time um, for churches to go through. And for those of us that preach, in a sense, I'm preaching by faith um, because usually I have many, many faces that I can look at to see if I'm connecting and if I'm engaging the audience and uh and uh, you, uh, we, we trust, will be blessed by it because God's word is powerful. Um, however, it is a preaching by faith uh, that the Lord would use it. Imagine with me as we begin, uh, you go on vacation, you're, you've um, maybe worked up to losing a lot of weight, getting in shape, building your endurance, and you go to the Redwoods for a backpacking trip. And uh, So you're up there in the wilderness, and somehow you get dreadfully off course, and you're off course for like two weeks, and maybe your food has run out, you're eating a little berry here and there, maybe a little foraging or whatever, right? Uh, But finally, the rescue team comes and rescues you, and your family's so glad to see you, and and the very first thing is, as they examine you, they say, you need nutrients, you need some some meat and vegetables. So imagine your family takes you to a restaurant and says, order whatever you want. You've been hungry. You've almost starved to death. You can get a steak. You can get a, 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 a double cheeseburger. You could get whatever you wanted. And you give your order to the waiter and say, I'll have five packs of fun dip. Now, I couldn't remember what the name of this candy is, but I had to ask, my wife uh, told me, but it's a little packet that's basically filled with sugar with some color dye on it, and it comes with, I don't know if the wand is wood, or I think the wand's even candy. So you you lick it, you dip it, you lick it, you dip it, and and what would happen? Your your family would laugh at you. You're going to still starve. You need meat and vegetables to get nutrients now, that's, that's uh, obviously a silly illustration, but the reality is, is that spiritually, many of us live like that. God provides spiritual, rich, spiritual food for us, but, but many of us prefer the things that have no substance, the things that bring no lasting satisfaction. Our hearts can be turned so quickly to this way or that way. The glitter of the world gains our attention. It begins to affect our thinking and how we're thinking, and we, we, we begin to entertain worldly thinking. We, we, we can even be deceived that, that this glitter and this, the, these things will actually satisfy. 
But as we know, any of us have been walking with the Lord any amount of time, it's, we're left empty. We're left hungry. We're, we're left eating fun dip that has no nutritional value whatsoever. Pergamum, the church at Pergamum had allowed errant teaching to come in. A permissive lifestyle is what resulted. And it, it, was, it was pervasive through the church. And the reality is, is even for us, all of us are influenced by the world. We have to live in the world. We have to live amongst unbelievers. We have to live amongst all the media, the billboards, the radio, the, you know, all the forms of media, the internet that comes to us. But we need to remind ourselves of what Paul says. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Worldliness it can be defined as just being consumed with the temporal things of life, the physical things of life, instead of what is spiritual and what is eternal. There are even times when we who have been born again we forget that the victory is ours. We have the Holy Spirit on the inside. Sin has been broken, and yet we can be swayed and still like a dog returning to its own vomit. I think of uh, towards the end of the American Civil War in the 1860s, and Abraham Lincoln um, gave the emancipation and freed all the slaves. And long after the war, you know what some of those slaves were still doing? They didn't know how to fully grasp their freedom. They only knew how to be slaves. They, they, they didn't accept their newfound freedom. They wanted to be in that familiar environment, and so too for Christians. We who have been freed from the slavery of sin to the world through Christ, but we, we, we don't always live like a free people. We don't always reckon ourselves dead to sin. Romans 6 and verse 11. We must say to the world, all that you have to offer is passing vanities. I belong to the king of kings. He gives me solid joys and lasting pleasure. So let's read our text, uh, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Um, we did begin the first half of this last time, and so we'll give a little bit of review the focus of our text today is really just 16 and 17 and, and with some extra application. But let's read the entirety of the message. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have, some, you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give him some of the hidden manna. 
I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but the one who receives it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us understanding into this text, and especially the admonishment, the imperative, the command. And Lord, if help us to be honest with our own selves to see where we're failing, where we're failing in keeping keen on the means of grace so that we might be sharp to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, just as this church had become permissive, Lord, convict us of where we've become permissive of certain things that aren't glorifying to you. And so we pray that you would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember this city was um, a, 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 a city that was uh, the, kind of the Roman capital of this area, and it was given to um, punishment and capital punishment, and it was symbolized by a sword. So it's interesting that Jesus identifies himself to the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, and that's a readiness for what? Judgment, to bring correction, Okay, that's, I think, what's symbolized there. And so just as this city boasted, where this church was, located in this city that boasted of, we have the right of the sword, we can execute upon will, Jesus comes on the scene and identifies himself. As you know, each one of those descriptions, the beginning of all of them, are drawing from the end of Revelation 1, these descriptions. For example, in 1.16, it says, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And so um, he's identifying himself from that glorious picture. Religion was flourishing in Pergamum. Problem was, is it was pagan cult religion that was thriving in that area. In fact, the city was drunk with sexual immorality and carnality. And so Jesus comes on the scene, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, and the two-edged sword points to the words potency and its power in exposing and judging the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Secondly, we saw that he commended them for their faithfulness. I know where you dwell, even where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast Hold tenaciously to my name, not denying Christ, and to the faith. And so they did not even deny the faith. They held to the central core doctrines of the Christian life. And even one of them gave of their life, right? Antipas. He was martyred. And we talked about in the first part of this about how persecution and persecution of the church shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't alarm us. And then we, we don't know anything historically about Antipas, but we know about his character, right? Because he's described as being the faithful witness, the faithful witness. And then thirdly, in verses 14 and 15, this is where the church had failed to keep herself pure, they're rebuked for harboring a group of compromisers, a, a, a group of, that's allowed too much permissiveness into their lives. And I'm not going to reread it all, but, but it's, there's a stark description here. Paul, writing to Titus, speaks of Christ that who gave himself 
for us to redeem us, to rescue us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so while the church is holding to the core doctrines of the faith, maybe they've got a good confession of faith, they've allowed compromisers to come into the back door and then some are even it's this it, there's an irony here that holding to the teaching of balaam we know balaam was hired by balak from moab the king of moab to curse israel but god only um, allowed him to bless it and balaam was moved by greed and financial game second peter tells us of balaam who loved the wages of unrighteousness and so what, what does he do? He devises another plan. Bring the Moabite women down. Let them do some dances. Let them maybe be half clothed. And, and the Israelites stumbled. And just as Balaam put stumbling blocks in front of the children of Israel and the men to compromise and to fall into sexual immorality, so too these Balaamites, as it were, here in the church bringing in this pagan influence inside the church. So that brings us to um, our text, verse 16. We're going to look at uh, Jesus commands the church to repent, number one. Secondly, the final admonition and glorious promises, number two. And then we'll give some application of how to forsake worldliness in our third point. First of all, verse 16 he says, very simply, therefore, repent. How many churches does he say this to out of the seven? Five of the seven, right? Because there's two, and Smyrna was one of them, and then I believe it's Philadelphia, where there was, there was, there was nothing but being commended. They weren't chastised for anything, but five of the seven. Repent. Repentance, of course, is a change of mind. It's a, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. To turn from the one thing and turn unto God. To forsaking the idols of this world and living uh, for the living God is how it's referenced, um, how Paul references it several times. The church is responsible for its sinning members. The, the whole idea of admonishment, right? Paul even says in Romans 15, 13, that I'm convinced that you're able to admonish one another. So in a sense, you are your brother's keeper, <laughs> your little brother's keeper here. Uh, but, you know, but also how much more for the leadership, right? And the shepherds to make sure that the church is pure, We saw earlier in our scripture reading, if you were paying attention, how Eli refuted his sons and rebuked them for their sinful behavior and their sexual immorality. And you know what happened there? The consequence, if you go and read 1 Samuel, the next chapter, what happens is the arks, or sorry, two chapters later, the arks taken away. The Philistines come and take the ark. And what did the ark symbolize? the very presence of God. And so it says in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 4, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli 
Opfinia and Phineas died. So the consequence of just allowing these things. And yeah, he okay, well, you could say, well, he did rebuke them. I mean, they're adult priests serving there, right? And so, you know, you could try to maybe make a case that it's not really Eli's fault. But did he, did he stop too short? Could he have done more to maintain purity? And so, too, in the New Testament church, God has designed church discipline as a means of keeping the church pure, but also to remove the one that is contaminating the church. And if it's a true believer, so that he might be won back. That's the goal. So the whole church now must repent. Beginning with the leaders who are holding to this false doctrine of Balaam, we must confront false teachers. We must be very careful, as Jude warns, to not even allow false teachers in. And believe me, our, your elders' antennas are up when we have visitors that come that sort of have a one, what is it, a one pony, one, what is it, how does it go? It's a one trick pony, yes. Uh, exactly. And, and, and they kind of keep every, t- every Sunday, they kind of keep coming back to this one thing over and over. And it's like there may be some imbalance here. And we're seeking to be very careful. Paul says, don't tolerate the evil. He even uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, he alludes to it as leaven. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So when a little leaven comes in, maybe in pew number 10 on the left side, it needs to be removed needs to be removed quickly, as soon as it's identified as that. And we do this in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of love, with much patience, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Thomas Manson, one of the Puritans, says, whoever delays his repentance does in effect pawn his soul to the devil. So in other words, when you know there's something you should be repenting of, don't put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. So the church today, in our day, is often non-confrontive. They don't want to address anything. They, it's all about nickels and noses. Um, you know, how many you got and how much are they given and that kind of thing. Rather than purity, Christ wants us to be concerned for the purity of the church. But the church at large and these mega churches are very non-confrontive. I even heard a uh, a pastor of a mega church that um, actually communicated he doesn't know over half the people and even if they're saved or not and in his church because it's so big and it was grievous to hear that it was a calvary chapel because their ecclesiology is there's one guy rather than a plurality and a team you know when i heard that i said what a shame you should have 
five other elders at least and have like 200 for each of you or, or whatever, even more than that. It's no wonder one guy can't know everybody in a church of thousands. Well, secondly, he says here, so therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He will do this quickly. He's not slow concerning his judgment, even though for us, sometimes it seems like it, right? I mean, we see the, uh, the slaughter of the unborn. I'm so glad to hear we had 15 down in front of Planned Parenthood or with other churches uh, from our team with, with a couple of other teams crying out for life. And you think, wait a minute, Lord, there's so many thousands being murdered behind the doors in a sterile environment, quote, right? Um, It's a miracle that God doesn't come and wipe them out and bring judgment. Sexual perversion and gay marriage and, and many other things could be listed where we could actually conclude, Lord, are you seeing all of this? You're not coming and making all things right. But we're not on his timetable. Now, what does the word quickly mean? It could refer to the second coming. Some commentators uh, seem to think that. Since he walks amongst the lampstands, he will intervene in the present in the life of this church through his providential controlling of all events. So, could be referring to the second coming, could be referring to even he's the one that will take the lampstand away, right? Remember when Corinth would abuse the Lord's Supper, the immediate result for some was illness and even death. And so the sword is a picture of truth. It's a picture of the word of God coming to bear truth. There's many allusions to what a sword is right it pricks the conscience it wounds the pride of us sinners it it cuts away the camouflage and pierces our defenses the world the word laid lays bare our sin and our need of a savior ironically you know how balaam's mentioned here and how christ is mentioned as the one with the sword Um, if you know the story of balaam it's i don't think an accident that he was actually killed by a sword In Numbers 31 and verse 8, And they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So the same fate on a much greater scale will come not only to the compromisers of Pergamum if they don't repent, but also any who follow in their steps with allowing this permissiveness. Revelation 19, verse 15, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So Jesus, the one with the sword coming out of his mouth, is God's true divine warrior. He is the captain of the Lord's army who fights on behalf of his people and achieves permanent victory. So, Jesus commands them, repent, repent, or I'm coming. Secondly, the admonition and the glorious promises here. Just as the other ones, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's an imperative, it's a command. 
Um, all of us have ears. Um, some may have physically have a deformed a deformity where there's not the shape of the ear, but the eardrum is still functionable, right? There's an ability to actually hear and to use that sense. So he's saying, hear, listen, let him hear. And then notice what the Spirit says to this particular church. No, it's to all the churches. And so that's why this is a message that we can preach for us, for Grace Bible Church San Diego, and any other churches. The repetition of this command stresses the importance of what the Holy Spirit is actually saying to the churches. And then he says, to the one who overcomes, to the one that's the Nike star, right? (laughs) Nike, right, is the overcomer. where that word comes from, and uh, there's there's three glorious things here that are that are given. The hidden manna. Whew, what could that mean? Several possibilities here. Uh, first of all, it appears to be contrasted with the pagan feasts that which were common during this time, right? Because there's all these pagan observances and cult worship and all of that. So it could be a contrast to that. Perhaps manna is mentioned because Balaam's mentioned, and you think of Balaam, you think of the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings, right? When they're wandering for six out of seven days, manna fell from the sky. That was their diet. But I like what we read in John, actually, John chapter 6. Jesus even refers to himself here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, John 6 is, we don't have time to unpack it completely. It is a key chapter in the New Testament with understanding the sovereignty of God, with understanding Christ. And look at how he says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. A direct contrast, right? The manna temporarily sustained you, but ultimately you perished. But oh, this bread, the bread of life, my second person of the Holy Trinity, myself, Jesus, has come down out of heaven. If you eat of him, you will not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that has come down out of heaven anyone eats of this bread he will live forever the bread also which i give for the life of the world is in my flesh it seems to point to this idea of an eschatological hope to be with jesus it's it's figurative of of even that victor's banquet or the marriage supper of the lamb that um that we will all be around and participating in and so to the one who overcomes these things here i will give him some of the hidden manna this is glorious secondly a white stone wow well what does that mean um (laughs) again several possibilities here Um, I think they all generally point to the same type of thing. The meaning of this has had multiple explanations. In a general sense, a white stone was being accepted. Ancient jurors actually would cast their vote in ancient cases with a white or a black stone. A black stone being guilty, a white stone uh, signifying innocence. 
a white stone was one of the stones that the high priest wore on his breastplate. Also, a stone was actually used for entrance into a banquet. And so the sense of the hidden manna, a futuristic, a future messianic banquet could be in play here. But but that's the idea. You get the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone of acceptance and entrance into my presence. But then, thirdly, notice there's a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. A couple of allusions from Isaiah 65, 15. And you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. My servants. Dennis Johnson in his commentary points out it's the idea of a transformed identity in Christ. Hence, we see Abram, renamed Abraham. We see Simon, renamed Peter. We we see these kinds of things, and it pointed to their transformation by God's powerful grace in their lives. But also Isaiah 62 and verse 2, And the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings of your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. He's the one that designates it. He's the one that gives this new name. It's glorious. I've got the hidden man. I've got Christ himself. I'm in his presence. I've got a white stone of acceptance. And now I have a new name that the Lord designates specially for me. Chapter 3 and verse 12 in Philadelphia, um, it says that part of the promise to the overcomers, I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So we'll see that when we get to it. So the elect are marked out. He knows who, who, who is his own, right? In John 6, it actually mentions that, that it's, um, there's that whole idea of a particular people. In John 17 as well, those whom the Father has given me, I lay down my life for. John 10, you see that as well. Revelation 19.12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon it which no one knows except for himself, and he is clothed with a robe, robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Greg Beale, in his excellent commentary, uh, if you want to invest in one commentary, well, perhaps an introductory one, um, uh, more than conquerors would be a good introduction to an Amil position, but Greg Beale is uh, the masterpiece, thousand pages long. He says this In the ancient world of the Old Testament, to know someone's name, especially that of God, often meant to enter into intimate relationship with that person and to share in that person's character. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, believers' reception of this name represents their final reward, consummate identification and unity with the intimate, in-time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom. 
It's one of those quotes you kind of need to like read a couple of times to let it really soak in. But but it's it, it's it it points to this final reward, consummate identification and unity with the intimate end time presence and power of Christ and His kingdom. Revelation twenty two four. It's, it's remarkable. You start tracing the word name and how it occurs, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. So all three of these promises pointing to the consummate time when we will enjoy the victor's banquet and inherit Christ and all the glories of heaven. So we've seen the command to repent. We've seen the promise, the glorious promises to the overcomer. And now let's just consider uh, just a few things very quickly um, for us, uh, practical applications, steps of how to put off worldliness and to put on holiness. How does all this apply to us? How can we apply it? Consider this, for the child of God, all of us are influenced by the world. We can't be taken out of the world. We can't move to a mountaintop and live alone. God has not designed that. But he has given us the tools requisite that we might fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's given it its very spirit on the inside, giving us the ability to renew our minds even for the best of us, we forget that the victory is ours in Christ. That, that, that we have conquered our worldly flesh through Christ. We've been declared free. The emancipation, right? The civil war, we're set free from the slavery of sin to the world. But we don't always live like a free people. And we ought to. We must say no to the world when these influences come. When Satan shoots his little arrows of temptation, we need to hold up the shield of faith. And don't say, I could take a few of those. Oh, that felt a little pretty good. Okay, and then we end up getting so duped. No, the shield of faith. So how can we do this? Well, these aren't in any particular order. I give these to you as a way that perhaps you can think about them and Um, Psalm 139, verse 23, examine yourself before the Lord in areas that you may be deficient on. And the first is prayer. Prayer is so hard, right? Prayer just doesn't come easy for for us. And, and, oh, I'm not talking about Governor Newsom said, oh, I like church, and I, I even say grace at dinner every night, you know, Roman Catholic grace. That's easy to do, but I'm talking about laboring in prayer, I'm talking about adoring him who is worthy to be adored in your prayers, offering praise and adoration as the psalmist does to him, but then quickly confessing your sin and and keeping short accounts and offering thanksgivings and all of that before you get to supplication, right? So often, oh, I pray, oh God, can you give me this? Can you give me that? Can you give me that? There it is. That count? No, that's why I say it's hard. But this is the best way to show, to, to strengthen your faith and your, even your piety. God has ordained prayer for man. He's provided access through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest that says, come. Secondly, repentance. True Repentance. It's a lifelong process, yes and amen, right? So there's that initial breaking with the world, 
but then it's a continual repenting when we stumble. That is the fruit of faithful prayer. Faithful prayer, laboring in prayer, as I described just a moment ago, will naturally lead to repentance. Self-denial. Put away king self. King self just makes you elevate yourself like Nebuchadnezzar. Look at all this that I have. I've got two cars and three couches and whatever. What carnality. Self-denial. Humility. Going through the dust, as it were. We are not our own. We, we need to mortify pride. We need to remember if anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Cross-bearing. It's, it's focusing on the outward Christ likeness. It's a denying of self. The things that, that you think you're entitled to, right? Some sense of entitlement, a denying yourself. Even Paul Miller's book, The J-Curve, is really good. It's the idea of with every circumstance, we're dying with Jesus. We're diving down in humility into the dust and, and so that we can rise victoriously with him, not in the way that we might think and getting our way, but in a way that is so other-centered and Christocentric that it brings Christ all the more glory. Meditation. Wow, that's a lost art. You know, to, to sit for five minutes straight with no distractions, no beeps, no looking at the phone, five minutes and meditate on the glories of heaven. To read even this book, Revelation 21 and 22, where it's described how glorious it's going to be. There will be no need of sunshine as the sun shines brightly in the sky right now. No need of moon. Because God will be the light to meditate on the glories of heaven, to long for that. In the midst of that, repudiating worldly pleasures. And then also, next, leading a life of obedience. That, that obedience to God's commands, to what has been clearly revealed, would come more naturally that we're inclined to that, that not only would we do that, but we delight to do that. Coram Deo, living before the very face of God, right? Not thinking that, well, okay, I'm done with my morning devotions, now I'll go about my day. <laughs> not realizing that he's omnipresent, he's with you every step of the way. And then the word, read it, meditate it on it, memorize it. Know it, love it, live by it. Let your life be ruled by the living word of God. Well, what are some hindrances to holiness and to cultivating these types of things? Putting off that worldliness is a growing in holiness. What types of things might hinder us? Loving the world more than you love God. Loving the pleasures of this world. A selfishness, which we've already talked about, where it's king, It's all about king self, right? you forget God's purposes. And for some of us, maybe, maybe with these subtle sins, that is Bridges in his book, respectable sins, the sins that aren't like blatant adultery and murder, you know, some of these subtle things, uh, maybe we might enjoy 
But we need to think biblically. All sin is a frontal assault against God and His holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Hindrances to holiness is a failure to mortify remaining sin. You know where your weak spots are. I know where my weak spots are. And it's a continual mortification of remaining sin. I read of a missionary um, that in his garden there was a shrub that grew and with these little children there that would go outside, it had poisonous leaves on it. So you know what he did? He loves his children. He uprooted that shrub and threw it away. But the roots were deep down so that it sprouted again and again. Every couple of months it would come up so he would have to go out daily. It was the only solution was to go out daily and inspect the ground to see if it had sprouted up again. Indwelling sin is like that shrub. We need to go and inspect and see if there's even the beginnings of life starting to shoot up and dig it up and throw it away while we still can. John Owen says, you must mortify every day. Sin will not die unless it be constantly weakened. You spare it, it will heal its wounds and recover its strength. And then we need to kill Pride. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride, a boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Pride, again, is a direct attack upon God. That fascinates me. You read the writings of Jonathan Edwards and some 20, 25 years after his conversion, and, and he, the way he speaks of the wickedness of his own pride in his heart is just alarming. Alarming that somebody could walk with such holiness and such nearness to God to be so in tune with even those little faint areas of of pride that still festered. The reality is, is the closer we walk with God, the greater we're going to see our sin. If you're like, oh, I'm I'm not that bad of a sinner, you know, well, that's telling me that you're you're not walking closely with the Lord. Because we will be so sensitive. Because we know that it is our sin that put him on the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Well, just a couple of applications briefly. We as a church want to be a church that remains pure. We want, to be, we want to remain alive. We want our candlestick there. We want Christ to be pleased when he sees how we function as a church. And we long to function again as a church very, very soon. But we need to be careful not to allow compromise to come in. Could it be that COVID-19 has moved some of us to compromise in certain disciplines? Maybe to even compromise on when we do reopen and we do regather that I've gotten pretty comfortable in my lazy boy watching worship. I'll stay in the lazy boy one week and then come to church one week and just kind of bounce. No, we need to be careful. Let's identify these areas of compromise now. William Jenkin, another Puritan, to forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle. Eternity for a moment. Reality for a faint shadow. 
Have we allowed worldliness to come in and to rule our lives? And then, if there's any listening that don't know Christ, you're dominated by sin. You're enslaved to sin. You're shackled. Yes, you can't hear the chains, but you're shackled to, to the, the, the sinful nature, and you need to be rescued. And that only comes by the blood of Christ. That's why he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For the one that willingly does not come to Christ, their future is grievous. Revelation 21.8, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The good news of the gospel is that in the, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for any who would come unto him. And so if you're listening to my voice and you're outside of Christ, flee to him. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity to look into your word. And we thank you for just a couple of verses and the density that is there. Lord, help us to consider these things. Help us to identify areas of compromise. Help us to fall in love with you all over again. Oh Lord, we ask these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.